if I'm on a ship, I want to get to my port, let's say, and I head off in that direction, all happy. But then immediately I get blown off course by wind and tide. And so I have to say, oh, that's where I wanted to go. This is where I'm going. That feedback makes me want to act in order to achieve my goal. So that's the essence of it. That's what we would call our first order cybernetics. Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jonathan Edwards and joining me as always, my co-hosts, Jan Vermouth and Scott Burleson. One word that comes up often in design and innovation is the word need. Goals are central to Alan Cooper's influential goal-driven design. A famous book in jobs to be done theory is called What Customers Want. And of course, the word job is right there in the name, jobs to be done. Chairs, rocks, stories, stars, information, music, and countless other things do not have needs, goals, jobs, or wants. But people, animals, organizations, societies do have these things. And they have them because they are what we might call purposeful systems. They can have goals and try to reach them. The original movement to scientifically study and understand purposeful systems was cybernetics, and many important ideas in engineering and AI can directly be traced back to the work from the original cyberneticians or cyberneticists, whichever. It has had an influence on just about any field one can imagine, psychology and architecture to management, education and theater, you name it. From the beginning, through the work of major figures in the field like Ross Ashby, cybernetics has had quite a bit to say about design, which is what we discuss in this episode. Our guest today is Paul Hangaro. He has done so many interesting things that I just can't do him justice. He's a designer, an entrepreneur, researcher, performer, and professor. He's the president of the American Society for Cybernetics, which was founded in 1964. Not, not by him, I should specify, and is currently a visiting scholar in both the School of Architecture and School of Design at Carnegie Mellon University. Paul worked for a time at the famous startup incubator Idea Lab, was the CTO of several startups, and also founded several of his own. He has taught many courses over the years, namely at Stanford on the role of cybernetic models in the design of products, services, and teams. He is a recognized expert in the cybernetics field of conversation theory, which is central to his understanding of design and which we talk about later in our discussion. So Paul, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks also for all the careful preparation. I appreciate it very much. Wonderful to be here. You're welcome. And so let's dive right in. So what is, uh, my first question actually is, is for you is, would you consider yourself more of a cybernetician or cybernet? I, I just cannot pronounce that word. Cyberneticist. What? What, Cyber, what is your? I prefer cybernetician only because the individuals that I learned so much from and I owe so much to uh, preferred slightly cybernetician. Maybe it's a, a little more British than American. Uh, I think it's a little more common. I haven't done the Google search to compare the number of use of each of them. Okay. I prefer cybernetician. 
Okay, better for me too. I can pronounce it more easily. <laughs> okay, so um, so what is uh, cybernetics? Well, a deep subject. Um, maybe to start with what the word is. That might be simple. There's a Greek word. Greeks, of course, thousands of years ago and even today, were a maritime culture, and they were interested in piloting ships. And the root of the word we have, cybernetics, comes from a Greek word meaning to steer or to steer artfully, to steer perhaps accurately or appropriately. Your wonderful introduction introduces the idea of intention and purpose and goal. So if I'm on a ship, I want to get to my port, let's say, and I head off in that direction, all happy. But then immediately I get blown off course by wind and tide. And so I have to say, oh, that's where I wanted to go. This is where I'm going. That feedback makes me want to act in order to achieve my goal. So that's the essence of it. That's what we would call basic or first order cybernetics. It's having a goal or being in the process of formulating a goal and then wishing to achieve that goal and using information, specifically feedback, uh, in order to do that. So that's the origin of the word. There are many other aspects of its origins. And so can you give us maybe a little history of uh, when did this when did this whole field start? Well, it really started with the Greeks because they were aware of this idea. Um, and Plato, it comes from Plato, for example. But we know it in today's culture, I think, substantially because in 1948, a man, probably everyone knows the name of, Norbert Wiener, wrote a book with the title Cybernetics. And this put it on the map in a very important way. The subtitle was Communication and Control in the Animal and Machine. And unfortunately, that's been misinterpreted quite a lot as to what all those words mean and what the implication of it means. His intention was that there is a universal here. There is a universal of using information which comes back to a system and the system uses it to correct its actions in order to achieve a goal. So Wiener's book in 1948 was, was seminal. Uh, however, I like to tell of a parallel universe, which was another character, perhaps equally important, if not more so, but far less well-known, is Warren McCullough. And McCullough was a neurophysiologist and a poet and an extraordinary man in many ways. And he was also interested in these ideas and he knew Wiener, you know, it was a similar sort of affinity. And McCullough pulled together a set of meetings that are called the Macy Conferences, Macy after the Josiah Macy Foundation, it's still around, largely focused on medicine and medical um, education. But in the 1940s, McCullough being a neurophysiologist, interested in education, being you know very much interested in doctorship and physiology, he got a grant and he got a series of grants to do the Macy Conferences. Now there are many Macy Conferences, only some are in cybernetics, but when you say Macy conferences, you mean these 10 conferences that ran from 1945 to 1953. And what he did was he invited experts from any discipline you can imagine, hard sciences, soft sciences. And he brought them all together in a room, initially a very sort of composed, careful 
uh, curated uh, set of conversations. They got a little bit out of hand as time went on, but they were always small and they were always curated. And he always brought two people of the same discipline to come. So two anthropologists, two physiologists, two philosophers, et cetera. And he did this because he said he wanted at least one other person in the room to understand what was being said at any given time. But his goal was to, to broach, to um, be across all of these different disciplines. And this invented uh, the word, the word came up, transdisciplinary. We hear a lot about interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary. Well, cybernetics is interested in transdiscipline, cutting across all of these disciplines, not combining them, but looking at the universal. And the universal was information as feedback to a system that has a goal. And in fact, if you go to Google Ngram, you know, this thing that will plot the number of frequencies of appearances of words. If you look, it's, you know, almost not there at all. And then in 1945, it comes way up exponentially, really exponentially, not just the soft meaning of that word. And then it fluctuates a bit. In fact, originally it was feed hyphen back the way it was originally E hyphen male. We may not remember that, but that's where it started. But over time, you lose the hyphen. You lose the hyphen, you keep the idea. Anyway, I would claim feedback is in the common culture because of that exponential rise. And also between Wiener's book and between the Macy meetings and McCullough's influence, the ideas of cybernetics suffused every discipline because it makes so much sense, right? I don't care if it's a cell or a linguistic system or homeostatic control of oxygen in the blood or a thermostat controlling what's going on here or an autopilot in a car. They're all the same from the point of view of using feedback and information to achieve goals. So that, can you maybe can you maybe expand a bit on, on on that with these examples you gave? In in what sense are these uh, feedback systems? Well, thermostat is the canonical example. Students get a little tired of it, but well, here we go. So I'm in a room and I have a system in the room called the heating system. What does that comprise? These following necessary pieces. There's a sensor which says, "What's the current temperature?" Oh, it's 65 Fahrenheit, whatever. Then there's the goal setting, which is I want it to be 70 Fahrenheit because that's comfortable for me in my situation. So this comparator takes the current state, 65, the desired state, 70, and says, oh, that sounds so good. And it, I'm losing the word here, it triggers the actuator, that's the word I want to invoke, sensor, comparator, actuator, to turn on the heating system. That affects the thing I want to affect, which is the temperature of the room. And the sensor says, oh, pretty good, 68, still not good enough, keep heating, go around, 70, oh, it's 70, okay, turn the heater off. And then after so many minutes, the sensor says, hmm, too cold, not 70 anymore, et cetera. That's the fundamental, that's the first order feedback loop. So sensor, goal, comparator, actuator, and the environment, which doesn't mean the world at large, it means the thing that the system is watching. And this is universal. And I would say that you can't have smart behavior if you don't have that first order feedback loop, because otherwise it's sort of, you know, what do you do? You turn on the heater occasionally, you turn it on randomly, you turn it on when you feel like it, you turn it on every 20 minutes. No, that's stupid. 
right? That's not using information effectively to know how to act to achieve your goal. Make sense? Yeah. So I wanted to get to obviously the 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 heart of the subject, which is um, so how how does this tell us anything about design and how does this help us with design and innovation, which is the the topic of our discussion? But I'm I, I think maybe we need to um, fill in a few gaps still before we we get to there exactly, and and um so maybe. I'm 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 actually wondering how come this cyber uh, so cybernetics is is a word actually I, I think most people maybe not heard of that much I mean you've heard about uh, you've heard about um, uh, what is it uh, like science fiction cyber movies talking, cyberspace or the cyber truck the, the, yeah <laughs> That's the cyber truck completely different <laughs> yeah cyborgs exactly yeah yeah just for your answer because. The um, I, my bachelor's was in electrical engineering, and we studied open systems and feedback systems. And in fact, the only two books I have kept of my engineering books are are about feedback loops because the the math wasn't that interesting. But but now having my career is more about product development and under and I see understanding customer needs as part of that feedback loop. And that metaphor was so important to me, even though I don't look at the books, I, I've kept them. So I was amazed. When I look, I had not heard of this word cybernetics, but this was this fundamental, important idea that for me for decades now. And I was blown away when I when preparing for today, reading about cybernetics. And I was like, wow, this is the thing that I've been so excited about. I didn't even know it had an idea. I mean, it didn't have a, a name. So sorry, I just, I just wanted to follow up with Jonathan's question is, is uh, the, you know, it was I was shocked to find this very important concept. And I didn't I didn't. I knew the concept. I didn't know the word. Well, there's a long story there, um, and and probably outside our uh, our scope today. The short version is that because it suffused all of these individual disciplines, mm. it didn't have an identity of its own. Mm. And another way to say it is, there were departments of chemistry, biology, physics, anthropology, linguistics, et cetera, pre-existing in academe, the cybernetics thing didn't really have its own life because it was too broad, it was too general. Also, you couldn't find a company out there that was you know, engineering things that wanted to found something that was as general as cybernetics. Uh, so that was a little bit of a political issue. There's a much worse political issue in terms of the epistemology of second order cybernetics, and maybe you'd like to get into that. And um, also the prefix was stolen, cyber. Hmm. So Gibson wrote a book, cyberspace, cyberpunk, cybersex, cyber this, cyber that, cybersecurity. <laughs> it sort of became synonymous with the internet and with technology rather than with this concept. So we, we lost that branding war, let's say. Okay. Not much well, at this point. Can I As mean matter sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just, I, I, it, so this is a beautiful moment where I have like 15 questions in my head already. Um, mm -hmm. Can I can I get back to this aspect? Because I think that is, that is what struck me as, as for me, the most interesting part is this, this, this universality or the claim to universality. So maybe can you, I mean, one, one kind of reaction could be, well, but all these systems are, they're so widely different. You were talking about cells and heating systems and kind of behavior of human beings. There must, how can it be that, 
that, that there is something universal about about that and how 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 would you kind of let's say defend that claim i think it's very i think it's true i mean there, it's not a critique in that sense but i think it's it's quite astonishing to have something of that kind of universality and then it's not it's not mathematics but it's something else so can you elaborate a bit on on on, on that universality i thought you said a second ago you think it's true well it that, that's least... the universality it's simply true whenever you look at a system you can choose to look at it not from what it's made out of yeah but how it uses information and the most what's the word sensible intelligent smart way of using information yeah. is to figure out how close you are to what you wanted and then to choose an action to try to get closer to what you wanted I mean, maybe the universality is purpose of systems. Yeah. And if that's the universality, how do you get what you want? Ross Ashby said cybernetics is a science of getting what you want. It sounds terrible unless you have the background, right? It sounds like it's about greed or something, right? But it's not. Yeah. It's getting to the... To the is it, so is it then, just from my understanding, is it more the, the, is it the study of how those systems work? Is it the design of those systems as well? Is it figuring out what the feedback loops are or all of that together? All the above. Oh, all okay. the above. And it can be as quantitative as you like, right? I mean, uh, Scott was just talking about, you know, in the context of, well, let's call it control theory. And that was a precursor. I mean, you could say a little bit more. And, you know, McCullough and Wiener were looking at systems that others had written about that were electronic circuits and also the homeostatic systems in the body. Yeah. And they were saying, well, what are the qualities of that? And you abstract it out and you get first order feedback, right? It's, it's not rocket surgery after you realize what you're going for, right? Okay. Um, so I think from there, it's, it's a simple story to want to have something that is broadly universal. But the most important thing to say is that we as observers say what the system is and we say that information is what's happening there. And this, I think some of you know where I'm going here. Cybernetics is not about the absolute knowledge of what's out there. And it's not about describing reality. There is system science and general systems theory. And some of that does seem to say, I want to know what's going on. And upon knowing it, I want to intervene. I want to pick a leverage point. I want to try to help out what's going on to improve the complexity of the system. But cybernetics has its own epistemology, its own way of saying how it thinks about how it knows what it knows, epistemology, right? Episteme, knowledge, the study of knowledge, the study of how we acquire knowledge and so on. So I'll back into that if you don't mind. As I look at what's in my studio now, for example, you might say, well, you know, what's your studio? I might say, well, I've got books there. I've got windows here. I've got a computer I'm talking on. And there's the tendency to say that that's absolutely true and objective. But then you might say, well, why did I say those things? Why didn't I say I've got an Apple monitor and a box of tissues and an oak floor? And the dust on the computer and whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's what I chose to say. Yeah. So, okay. So now let's wait a second. I made an observation and I described it. And I might make an observation and describe a thermostat. That's me doing it. But now if cybernetics is the science of purpose, one definition only, 
then let's look at my purpose and my description. Hmm. So it's me and my room, me and the thermostat, but now I'm going to back out and look at my purpose in describing it. Well, it's because I wanted to tell you a little bit about where I am. I chose something that was relevant. Wait a minute. I wanted, I chose. When I observe my own observing, I realize I'm doing that. And even if you want to say the objective reality is out there, the more important thing is I am selecting. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to revise that. I am inventing what it is I choose to talk about. Now, if I talk about books, you might say, well, that's not an invention. Right. It's a social convention, right? It's an invention we make in society. And it's a language that we create to talk about the world that we live in, in order to live together. Yeah. But is that objective, real, true, doesn't matter. Because I'm still making the choices I make when I choose to observe what I observe and express what I express. So now we're in the realm, not of first order cybernetics, sensor, feedback, comparative. We're in the, the realm of second order, looking at our own looking and realizing it's up to me. I am responsible for what I just said. So I have to be then responsible for the quality of what I say, right? That means that if I lie to you, that's on me, right? If I choose to talk about those books and not those books, for whatever reason, that's on me. So the individual responsibility rushes in to this apparently dispassionate way of looking at the world in terms of information and feedback and makes the observer responsible. And that to me is profound. System science doesn't necessarily have that. Science science is interested in other things. Science science is interested in the accumulation of knowledge and the consensus of how to get that knowledge and how to talk about what reliable knowledge means. Scientific method, experiments, blah, blah, blah. Right? Cybernetics is not science. Cybernetics is about getting what you want. Cybernetics is acting in order to get. And that get might be specific, I'm on a ship, I want to get to port. I want to describe to you a little sense of what's in my environment. I want to build a thermostat. I want to build a product. I want to build an organization. I want to design a government. All of those things are intentions and goals, which are not necessarily fixed. Hopefully they're not fixed. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get into into that aspect a bit. Forgive uh, me for jumping in. A bit late. No, it's it's great. And I you you introduced actually the so this kind of bridge that I was missing to so that we can get into the talk, uh, the discussion about design, which is this, th there is this distinction between first order and second order cybernetics. And so am I correct to say that second order cybernetics was a kind of, let's say, realization at some point that in these feedback loops, you need to include the the observer, the person looking at at the at the world exactly and bateson has a wonderful diagram of this in which he actually writes the name of wiener and bateson himself and so on and so initially the box is around the thermostat with the sensors and so on and then the box is around the thermostat and wiener and bateson and everybody in that box of the system that is both um wiener didn't write much about this uh, but those who knew Wiener, who I knew and I heard first person from, assert that Wiener was completely aware of this. But it was a political issue in saying, 
oh, I'm a scientist, you're a scientist, you don't get objectivity, sorry. You don't get to say you're objective. And that was like, well. But of course, if you go back to science and Heisenberg, long before Wiener, not about objectivity either, right? It's about the, uh, I don't wanna get into Heisenberg, but it's about the question you ask. The question you ask gets you the answer you get, right? More than some kind of objectivity. Science is a consensual act, it's a social act. Anyway, that's about the constructivism and about reality and all that other stuff. Can I try a scenario? I mean, the, the first order cybernetic loop is super interesting, but then it's like the second order is just like, well, I, I just like I have to expand my brain a bit. I'm going to fucking try a scenario. Let me know if I'm thinking about it right. I'm imagining playing music and I'm playing a guitar and my first order loop is I'm listening, I'm hearing, and I'm making some adjustments to what I'm playing to get to what I want. Mm-hmm. Now, so that maybe that's the first order. Would the second order be more like I back away, listen to the recording at a higher level, and and that is that my second order loop? And then I could, am I thinking about that correctly? You you are, and it lets me make a, a, what I think is a valuable distinction. Yeah, going back to the thermostat, which I think is a, a little bit cleaner, but it's okay. no more valid than yours. My room is seventy Fahrenheit. First order loops working great. Yeah, but I'm cold. So I go okay. over and I change the goal of the first order system in order to uh, bring it to 72 to make it warmer. So in terms of architecture, that's a second order loop. And that's what you're describing in music. You know, I'm making my music. I'm doing fine. I'm making the music I want. But wait a minute. Is this the music I want to be making? Right. Or I'm I'm on this chord progression and then my colleague over there is doing some jazz thing and I want to join him. So I change my goal. It's a Ah. So, so that's the second order architecture, if you will. But the second order, but the consequence of looking at your own looking, of, of pulling out and looking at yourself as the system that is under scrutiny, that's where you get this moment of, wait a minute, I'm doing this. Whether I have access to reality or truth or objectivity, not the point. The point is I am always doing things that I am responsible for when I describe a system as X versus Y. And we'll back into this. So, so that really, I think, clarifies things because um, so we have this second order cybernetics where we include the observer and you could ask, OK, that's a nice sentence. What does that actually change? And I think you've expressed it very nicely. It's uh, so yes, we have uh, systems, feedback loops that can um, achieve goals, but who sets the goal? And and I think that's exactly the, that is the question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I think that, that, um, that gives us all the material we need to, to get into the, the question of, okay, so how can this kind of, of thinking help us with design and innovation? So mm-hmm. what, how do you see um, cyber, how does cybernetics relate to design and innovation for you? And maybe if you can or- just start by giving us already a definition of innovation so we know what we're talking about. I mean, what's your your definition? If you don't mind, I'd like to, to go in the first order you suggested because there's a beautiful segue from cybernetics to design, which is Herbert Simon has this definition of design which starts out, everyone designs. First of all, that's a wonderful moment, right? It's a democratic thing. It's not something that only experts do. Everyone designs who devises courses of action, courses of action, like a boat aiming toward a port, 
aimed, aimed, courses of action aimed at changing current conditions, existing conditions into preferred ones. Preferred conditions implies a goal. Current conditions implies, you ready, a sensor. So design, he says, Herbert Simon, not a cybernetician, says design is essentially a cybernetic process of looking at what you have, current conditions, what you want, preferred ones, and devising courses of action to get from one to the other. It's the same definition I gave you earlier of the boat heading toward the port. That's what design is, right? Now, it's more complicated than the boat heading toward a port, I think. It's more dimensional, right? There's a lot more going on. So I've written, I think you know, and again, your preparation is extraordinary uh, with colleagues about the nature of the design process both from a systemic point of view and from a cybernetic point of view, slightly different, but related. And ultimately how the process of design can be reviewed and changed, improved, I don't think is too conceited with the knowledge that it's essentially a cybernetic process. Now, of course, we already have a lot of those aspects in conventional design methods, right? We do research, that's a kind of sensing we make a prototype and we try it out. That's kind of actuating. We see the result of that prototype or the trial, uh, perpetual beta, you know, version three, four, five, et cetera. All of that uh, speaks of information as feedback to the thing that it is that we want. And also the fact that we change what we want as a consequence of seeing what goes on. Um, cybernetics also has in common with design in a complex world the idea that we can't know everything about it. It's not a scientific endeavor. It's not an objective endeavor, but we can try things and see what happens. And as a result of those trials, do better. It's another way of saying it. Now you asked about innovation and that's, that's a bag of worms. Um, in the last couple of days, it's been a long time since I went to Google Engram. Google you hear that I'm a fan and looked at the word innovation in the titles of books on Amazon. I think it's probably peaked and gone down now. Um, so innovation, nov, nova, nova, right? An egg, something that is new to make something new. Some people define innovation as something novel. Some people don't like the idea that design is about novelty because if it's only about novelty, then what am I, an artist? You know, aren't I trying to solve a practical problem? If I can solve a problem over here with something that's already been solved over there, that's not really novel. It's an application across domains. Isn't that valuable? Isn't that good design? Isn't that innovation? So, uh, so my colleague Hugh Duberly, and much of what I'm discussing here comes from my long-term collaboration with him. Uh, we talk, as you know, I think you know, in one of our papers about pure novelty is not the goal of design, but rather getting what you want, solving a problem that you have defined, finding a problem that you think is valuable to define in a way that leads a path toward not necessarily a solution, meaning a complete solving or a complete removal of the negative, but rather an amelioration of the situation, an improvement of, of a situation that, that maybe can't be made perfect 
you can't reduce all of the ills to zero in, in the wicked problems that you probably know. Um, so innovation, again, Beverly and I and another colleague, uh, Nathan Feldy, some years ago now worked on a very large concept map poster, which proposes a series of feedback loops involved in really bringing about innovation. And the fundamental definition, our definition, there are many, is it's, I remember now. I've got it if you want from a quote. Is, is like, it, so is it value, from um, an interview change? you gave, innovation is a new insight that leads to change insight. that has real positive value. Thank you very much. The insight was what I was saying. It's an insight, right? So you're seeing something in a way that you didn't see before that brings about a change and that change has positive value. So insight, change, value. That's our definition. It's an explanation rather than a remark. I mean, years ago when we were doing this, uh, Christensen's book, um, The Innovator's Dilemma, was very well known. And we felt that we were explaining how to get innovation where he was only describing what innovation is. And do you hear that difference? If you explain how something can be brought about and how it works, you have a better model than if you're only able to describe, to list some of the attributes of it. And the poster is, I think, still quite strong. It's, it holds up, it's quite remarkable. Essentially, it's, there's a current situation and then somebody says, well, you know, that's not so good. The current condition is not what I would prefer. So what does that individual or team or whatever do? Sees that misfit, that misconnection, and then moves toward experimenting, trial and error, brainstorming, whatever, to find that insight and then uses that insight to create an image for what a better result could be. So that might be a prototype, might be a scenario, depends on the context, might be a concept movie, whatever. And then the encouragement of that in the community where that insight, where that way of behaving differently, where that design could be an improvement, then becomes a vision that others can see and then if required, others can be brought in to implement, right? It's not me making a new, a new prototype or something, right? It's a bunch of us working together to create minimum viable product, bringing about change in the community, influencing climate through governance, whatever it may be. Um, and so there are a series of feedback loops in this uh, map of innovation, which ultimately, if the innovation is implemented and it does bring about positive change, that becomes a kind of new status quo where everything's okay for a while until somebody says, wait a minute, things have changed. Not so good. There's a misfit. There's the current condition and I see a preferred condition. Therefore, I need an insight to bring about change that leads to positive good. So it's a cycle. And so how, in your view, does this, having the cybernetics lens or, or or view in the background how does that help or, or how is that different from the usual let's say uh, i don't know how to call them frameworks theories that are out there so, such as you know i mean there's so many lean startup we can name of course jobs to be done which we we're quite fans of yeah. um talk about um, uh, design thinking i mean there's there's all sorts of 
you would think, oh, we've got enough uh, methods. I mean, how does having this cybernetic cyberneticians view, you know, maybe bring something new or help us? So very fair question. And give me a little bit of space to try to make an argument. Uh, the argument is essentially a syllogism. And it starts from the idea that if you're doing design in the 21st century, you need to have a systemic view. Because even if I'm designing something for this, and it's a very deterministic result of code that runs on an app. So a phone, yeah. just for the listeners. Say again? It's a phone for the list. Uh, just for the listeners. It's We're a listen. You're you showing a phone, I'm, yeah. I'm showing a phone, forgive me. Um, so there's the screen of hardware, there's the software behind it, there's the design of the software, there's the UI concept, there's the backend, there's the database, there's the network, there's the commerce, there's everything. So even if I think of myself as somebody designing the screen, I am a member of a system and a system of systems that brings about the results. So if you're designing in the modern age, even something as deterministic as an app, you're designing in the context of systems. And surely I don't have to convince you that if you're interested in problems in the world, so-called wicked problems, injustice, climate crisis, insecurity of food, et cetera, terrorism, whatever you want to do, those are systemic problems. So if design and systems, ah, but wait a minute, systems on their own sound like this dispassionate thing that's out there. And isn't there intention and agency and intervention that humans make? Cybernetics is pretty good at that. It's the science of purpose. So come with me here, design and systems, systems then cybernetics, because it's about something as mechanical as first order feedback and sensors. I think I've convinced you that if you want to build a thermostat, you got to have a sensor, you got to have a computer, you got to have an actuator, right? And then you have to have nested systems, nested feedback loops, I should have said, right? So cybernetics is all about these things from a mechanical, quantitative, level all the way up to looking at your own looking and realizing I'm a designer in a design context and there are many other individuals here and many, many other stakeholders. I have to defend my point of view because I can't say I'm objectively right, you have to believe me. I have to justify my point of view and my reasons and the choices I make. Now this is pure Horst Rittle and wicked problems he called them, right? He was influenced, by the way, by cybernetics. He was at Ulm, the school in Germany in the 50s. Wiener came through Ulm. It was around. Cybernetics was in the air in that sense. And so this second order of looking at your own looking and being responsible is there in the wicked problems approach. So I've gotten to second order cybernetics. But now, now what do we do? This maybe is closer to your question than, than even before, but I think the full syllogism is useful. How do we, what do we do? Well, we're a group. We're systems of systems of humans interacting. What are we doing? We're having conversations. Hello, right? Design is conversation, right? I can design as an individual. If you really pushed me, I would claim that I'm having a conversation with myself as I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing. But surely in a systemic view of what design requires in the 21st century, you got to have a conversation. 
So that brings in, that rushes in all of the stuff about conversation theory, which I know you want to touch on. And there are many pragmatic points of view there. The first one to mention, and then I'll stop, is the idea of variety and Ross Ashby, whom you mentioned. Ross Ashby, originally a psychiatrist, comes along and sits down and says, well, if you have a system that's trying to make a change in an environment, and that environment is coming at you with all of this disturbance, so I'm on a boat, wind and tide, I've got a thermostat, cold air, open windows, changing temperatures, whatever. Disturbances are always around changing what I want to something that I don't want and that I need to correct for. Again, that's the fundamental of design. Then in order to compensate for the variety coming at me and changing the things I want to hold and regulate, I have to have an equal amount of variety to match it. So the concept of variety in Ashby is variety has to match variety. The variety that's coming at me has to be met by at least as much variety for me. So what do I mean by all of this? Why do I talk about it? We're a group of people. We're trying to design a solution to a problem. Let's boil it down to that, right? We want to design an app that does something. How much complexity is in the environment that we have to manage in order to bring our order to that complexity and achieve our goal of building a product? Well, we need people in UX, we need people in tech, and we need people in uh, software and design and this and that and business and this and this and that. We need variety in the room, variety in the conversation in order to build us something as simple as I'm waving my phone again, an app on a phone. And now we're going to approach a wicked challenge in the world, which involves politics and socio-technical complexities and all that. Who do we need in the room to even start to think about that problem? So there have been some approaches to this. I like to talk about designing the cadence of conversations. Usually you say, oh, let's get a team together. Well, I don't need those 10 people in the room every week or five times a week at 9 a.m. for a stand-up every, every single time. Wh what are we doing next and who do we need to address that thing that we're doing next? We're always building new knowledge. What's the question that the new knowledge generates, et cetera? So the very idea of variety from cybernetics and conversation being a requirement if we're doing design in 21st century, because that's a syllogism, Right. If you're doing design, you need systems, systems, second order, second order. Sorry, system, cybernetic, cybernetic, second order, second order conversation. Bingo. So I would claim that there are many pragmatic aspects to this weird, technical, confusing, misunderstood thing called cybernetics that has an impact on design. And Reynolds Glanville, whose work is extraordinary, started as an architect, studied with Gordon Pask, as did I, um, and then brought a lot of, of insight, I think, into the process of architecture and design from the point of view of conversation says um, a couple of wonderful things. You know, design and cybernetics are the same thing, unquote. Another one I really like is design is the action. Second order cybernetics is the explanation. And I think that's just fantastic. Well, Sorry, yeah. can so, I can I sneak? I need to sneak in uh, a couple of questions. I, I really like this. So, so to me, a lot of this sounds a lot. Okay, in other 
terms and 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 correct me if I'm wrong. It's like there is a kind of a perspectivism built into cybernetics. It depends on your on the perspective that you take, and they can change and and they depend on. I mean, in built into the word of a perspective is you. There is a point where you look at. There is a focal point where you look at, and and that's kind of the goal that you want to want to achieve in a certain sense, or where you where you want to go to, or what you want to get. But how do you? I mean, mostly you're acting as a team in, or very often it is the case that you're acting. So so, and what I experience very often is that 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 goal or that where do we want to go or what do we want to get to. Uh, gets lost. They get confused about it. There is debate about what it is. Uh, or we start off going in some direction, and in the middle we realize is that is that really where, where we want to go? So how do you kind of? I don't know if that's a conversation. So, but 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 how do you manage that that agreement on a goal, that finding a goal, that even even sometimes even daring to take to have a perspective and say that's 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 where we want and not there. So I don't, I can't give you a formula and I can't give you as you can for, you know, design thinking double diamond or, you know, five steps or 12 steps or however many steps. I can't give you that. But what I can say is if you think about what a model of conversation could help you with, it would, for example, say that we have to start in a place where our language is sufficiently similar to have the conversation. Yeah. And when I say language, I don't obviously mean English or a European language or an Asian language or anything like that. What I mean is, what are the distinctions that are important to us and the relations between them? So I might say, and the students do this all the time, I'm gonna build an interface that's intuitive. Yeah. And I'm like a game show host, I go, eh, <laughs> I'll answer. I don't know what that word means. What, what the hell does that mean? So what's the layer down in which this becomes more and more uh, specific? So common language. But then we have to have this back and forth where as a result of showing things that are physical in the world, building prototypes, writing down what we mean, hmm. um, building models, especially explanatory models, and I, that can be a diagram, it can be a, an Arduino prototype, it can be a mock-up, it can be many, many different things. It can be a really very beautiful, elaborated explanation in prose. All of these can be models. And we have to assure ourselves that we mean the same thing by those. We need to have agreement. And the consequence of agreeing on, yes, that's it, that's, that's where we're going, we're not done yet. Because if we build something based on it, then we really test if we really agree. When I was in Silicon Valley, I used to love to tell the following story. I was often, you know, called into a group of, of startup people. And the first question I would ask is, uh, do you have a strategy? Oh, yeah, we have a strategy. I say, great, show it to me. Is it written down? I say, no, it's not written down. Oh, no, it's not written down. No, it's not written down. Okay, so what is it? And exactly as you would expect, in that next 10 minutes, you would see all of the disagreements in the room because they didn't even bother to write it down. So knowing what artifacts you need, it's a little bit of the story I was just trying to tell, in order to assure and reassure and build increasing trust that you really do mean the same thing is a tenet of conversation. We do that every time. I say pass the salt, that's pretty unambiguous. But if I say I want something intuitive, that's the other extreme. So how do we find that middle ground? We 
build models, we build prototypes, we put the prototypes in the world. And that's sort of obvious, right? People know that. But what conversation theory would tell you is it's only through action that you know that you really agree. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. It's, it's yeah. only through yeah. action you know that you really agree. Yeah. I have to think about that one. Well, here's one. So um, I'm going to describe to you and your partner how to do a tango. And I'm going to explain it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to show you movies. And you're going to say, oh, I get that. And now I'm going to ask you two to dance. Which is the better proof that you say, oh, yeah, I get it, or that you can really dance together? Because agreement and conversation is a kind of dance. Gordon Pask used to use this analogy a lot. Part of the time, you're shoving the partner, right? You're controlling the partner. You're saying, I want you to move here. And in some circumstances, they'd say, how dare you? But instead, they realize that what you just did was part of a goal you had, and they have the same goal or parallel equivalent goal, so they can shove back. And that's really what conversation is. It's a kind of mutual shoving under agreement of what's allowed and what's not allowed, what kind of shoving is allowed. Shoving sounds violent, right? But in the sense a gentle of gentle push. Yeah. Say again? It can be a gentle push. It can be a gentle push, right? Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think, I think about it that way. I think about it differently. And if you thought about it differently, you might see the following. Yeah. I had someone, a student in class the other day when we were talking about the elements of conversation. She said, I think provocation should be part of your model. Really? Provocation? We use that word a lot here. Um, if, if a student who speaks English as a second language goes to a dictionary and looks up provocation, they think, no, no, I didn't mean to provoke you, because they think it means something violent. But what we mean is, what's your idea? No, come on, I'm going to provoke you to think differently about that idea. Come on. You know, friction would be a kinder word, right? I, I want to rub against what you're saying. I'm not going to just say, well, that's good. So I, I've understood that conversation theory, one of the, the I mean, one of the things that it, we're trying to do in that process is to get to a common understanding and uh, also to uh, agree on where we want to go on, on goals that we want to uh, have together. Um, is there anything else uh, within, within the conversation theory? I mean, is that basically what we're trying to do with the con well, conversation? Wonderful question. I, I think I would now, let's zoom out a, a level, as we like to do to move to the second word. And imagine that we are engaged as a team and we are situated, we're looking at a situation and we're describing what we're seeing and we're looking for ways forward. And what may happen is we realize that the way we're looking is not working. Working meaning not allowing us to say, yes, we have a grasp of what we're experiencing, not allowing us to say, okay, I can see where we might go with that and how we might lead in a direction that would be an action that would be a kind of design outcome. And where you back into is the realization that you don't have again, that word, the language, you don't have the right distinctions to understand what's in front of you. 
And so what conversation theory would say, or its implication would be that you have to develop a new language, a new way of seeing in order to make progress. Now there are some wonderful examples of this in the world. You, you, you may not recall, it may not have been within your career span as it is within mine. It took Bill Gates an awfully long time to figure out that the internet was a threat. He didn't get it. Now, I would claim that it's not that he saw what was going on and said, no, 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 that's not a problem to me. I would say he didn't have the language to see what was going on because what was his language? Remember, he invented the language that hardware and software are different and I can sell the software separately. IBM didn't get it when they wrote that contract with him early on that made him a fortune, right? His initial fortune. That was his first great insight because he had a language for seeing this distinction and that allowed him to act in a way in the world that made Microsoft start. But then Microsoft got so, so stuck in the idea, it's an oversimplification, but it's not one. You know, software comes on CDs, the CDs are local, the local software runs locally, et cetera. And then the internet came and he, had, he could not conceive of it. And then one day he said, oh, I get it now. And he wrote that famous memo on Pearl Harbor Day in some year in the 1990s. And then they made a browser and the browser killed Netscape and yada, yada, yada. Another example is uh, Lou Gerstner became head of IBM when IBM was going down because it still thought of itself as a hardware company. And he said, we're not a hardware company anymore. We are a services company. And he changed the language of the organization overnight because he was the king, right? He could do it. Bill Gates was the king, he could do it. But most organizations don't work that way because the CEO has a vested interest in the business as it is. And this is a whole piece of work I can send you a reference that you can share where why is it that so many successful new companies and innovative companies or skunk works, or in the garage, or there are three people who left the big corporation that wouldn't listen to them, and so on and so forth. There's so many existence proofs that you can't do it inside the existing organization. And my colleagues and I claim, because the language structure of that organization is such a tight box that it's difficult to see anew, to create a new language. Partly because whenever you try to create a new language, people say, why are you wasting my time? What do you?" I, they don't know that they have no clue what you're talking about. They think they understand you, but they don't. Because they don't adopt the, the gestalt. They don't understand this, this new way of seeing that comes about. And they want to kill you. Literally, they want to get rid of you in the organization. Why? Because I'm a CEO, I'm a manager. What you're saying, first of all, I don't understand. That's a threat to my self-interest. But also, you want me to change the business in a direction that I don't have any competence in. I'm making money here. I'm good. I got a salary. I'm okay, go away, stop. And I had a conversation the other day with a furniture company that has this very challenge that they are trying to see their business in a new way. And the management is saying, what are you doing? You, you made only that much money? You, you know, we're a billion dollar company. You made 10 figures, who cares? Go away because the language is such a tight box. So long story the creation of new language becomes a fundamental way to do innovation when the world is changed such that 
the existing systems that the companies are can't just tweak themselves. You need a change of the system that is the corporation, not a change in the system. It's a subtle way of saying you can't get there from where you are. You have to become something else hmm. because, the because the nature of the change in the market is such that it requires more than a simple tweak to what you're already doing. As a colleague of mine likes to say, General Motors got really good at making the wrong car cheaper. <laughs> that was their response yeah. to Toyota because they didn't get it. Anyway. I think that is such an interesting point. And actually, I see a lot of parallels with, we had a previous discussion with um, uh, Ian Kerr and Jason Frasca. And um, I don't know if you know them, by the way, but they, they, have, this, they have a very nice um, kind of general uh, thrust in their ideas is, is this idea that the new cannot be conceptualized. So, so it's the, you know, you can't talk about, something if something is really new you can't even really talk about it and and i i see a lot of parallels with what you're you're saying here yes until you have the language until yeah until that's you right. develop the language yeah that's right and the development of the language one could speak more of it's not something that you just do on your own and so you know steve jobs was famous for a thousand no's so you would go to him they say and people i know who work there would confirm this and it's been written about you would show him something and he would say, no. And so people say, well, you know, he, he doesn't really know what he wants. <laughs> no, the point is he has an intuition for what he wants and he knows that's not it. He doesn't yet have a language to describe the difference, but that intuition was powerful. I mean, think of the crap we'd be carrying around in our pockets if he never existed. Yeah. Mm. So he had, you know, he he was right more than he was wrong. And I think maybe I, I want to test a little bit your 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 intuition on this, but right. I think I, I I completely agree with that. I mean, there's this link between basically what what you can see, what there is, epistemological component, and language. I mean, that's I'm 100 percent on 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 board with that. And then, what, but how do you see like if we take a company as a system or a structure or whatever you want to call it? Why is there a tendency to maintain the language? Why is there a tendency even that some, well, in some companies, others might be different, but there's some companies out there where it seems to be that 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 it's these language things, it's almost like at one point it was very moving. It was more uh, like words were open and then they, they kind of cool down and become stiff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why is that? So I think there are a number of reasons and it's an excellent and important question. And I could send you a short document that I think captures it, but let me give you a little taste. And I touched on it a little bit before, but let me go a little further. So a company comes along and is successful and it's making money. And so how does it make more money? By doing the same thing more efficiently. Yeah. And my colleagues and I claim that what that means is it narrows its way of seeing and its language in order to become more efficient. And that of its nature eliminates a wider view, narrower and narrower, solving more and more minuscule problems, you know, TQM, Six Sigma, all of that kind of stuff, such that the language becomes even less able to see change in the market 
change in the environment that means what you're currently doing is going to be obsolete. An example of a long-term client of mine and the character who stimulated this little booklet I'll send you uh, was a DuPont for many years. And what DuPont didn't realize was that they said, oh, we're fine. We're making money on nylon. Everything's good. But they didn't realize that the rate of inflation was faster than the rate of increase in what they could charge for nylon. That's a signal. And why didn't they even think about that? Because they were based on macromolecular chemistry, at least that division was, right? We're making this stuff, we know what we're doing. When I was at Sun Microsystems, Scott McNeely, when it was really clear that it was going down the tubes, he was the last person standing of the four uh, founders. He said, it's okay, we're good. Don't read the Wall Street Journal. The network is the computer. Now, they had been saying that for 20 years. And when they first started saying it, it was a new way of seeing. Again, the Microsoft example, right? Gates didn't get it. And that's why they made such an amazing amount of money building servers and doing software for servers and yada, yada, yada. They grew exponentially for a long time until the market had changed. They didn't realize, he didn't realize, that they were not unique anymore, that there was competition, and that there were other ways of solving the problem of bulking up on servers, including the cloud and so on and so forth, which came a little bit. Mm. So you see the world in a way that has filled your pocketbooks, has made you money, has yeah. made you important, has given you a high title. And now somebody's saying, hey, you, you you're going to fall. You're screwed. You better change. And you say, wait a minute, I'm fine. I'm still making money, I think, right? I'm still important. You're telling me that my company is going to be overtaken by another company or another idea that doesn't exist yet. You're crazy. I don't understand you. The language you're using, I think I understand, but I really don't. And I don't know that I don't, et cetera, et cetera. And then every attempt to push against that by anyone at any level is, is met with the resistance of the strongest thing of all, which is my self-interest and my self-importance. And the resistance of that is greater than any great idea. And so what do you do? You leave and start a startup. You create a skunk works. You don't tell management what you're doing, all of the other kinds of stuff. And of course, the act of creating new language, which we haven't touched on, is itself really hard. And it's yeah. not predictable, right? It's, yeah. it's not, in this, in this book that I keep referring to, there are three orders of change we talk about. So which book, just so, can you just remind us which book it was? I, I haven't, I haven't named it. It's called Notes on the Role of Leadership and Language in Regenerating Organizations. I, I can grab a PDF of it right now if that's useful. Yes. No, no, that's fine. It's just for the listeners so they can also... But well, please, please send it. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll need to get it through your distribution because it, it doesn't... Um, it's not commonly available. Mainly, we just want it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, I won't try to find it now. Yeah, you send it over later. That would be great. But, but if yeah. you don't mind, I'll finish the idea. So if I'm making the right car, I want to make the right car cheaper. And I might innovate in my production line to do that. Six Sigma and all of that. Then there's the idea that's a little less predictable than that and more difficult, 
which is, you know, let's see, there's a portable phone and there's a chipset I can put in it and there's a touch screen I can add. And then there's this thing called the internet and there's a browser, I, let's make a smartphone. That's an accumulation of things together in a product that is a new configuration of things that otherwise exist. So that's the middle one. But the hardest one is this complete innovation. It's cubism out of realistic painting. It's Einstein out of Newton, right? It's the internet out of software on CDs. It's a new way of looking at an environment that has changed so much that the old ways of creating order, what does creating order mean? Creating order means an opportunity for a business. Right? That there is a new way of creating order and maybe there has to be a new way of creating order because the old ways are completely occupied by existing competitors or isn't gonna work anymore because the world has changed and most people don't know. And so, again, it's such a massive change of psychology to go, wow, I'm wrong. I'm gonna lose my job but it's all good because I'm going to invest in something that's new. It doesn't happen. And the resistance of, of top executives, middle managers, and anyone else who doesn't understand the language, not because they're stupid, but because they haven't made the transition. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's what's made them successful also, I mean, in the past. So, but yeah. the, you have this beautiful quote, uh, which is uh, creativity is an act of re-seeing. And there's yeah. uh, just a, another quote you had from um, Heinz von Furster. It's, if you desire to see, learn how to act. And good? so, yeah, very nice. And my, my question is, so we, we're trying to, so part of the, the creative act or the or, or let's say innovation, just to be broad, is is creating a new language for, for new, new things that didn't previously exist. So how can we, how does this, happen do we do this through conversations is that part of uh... yeah first i want to be clear you can have various levels of of innovation changing you know improving the thing that's already there and you might have a new way of doing something that's really fantastic and much more efficient but we're talking about this top level this highest most complex level and how do you how do you go about it well one way is to think about it as a kind of incubation of multiple approaches. This is what we propose in this little book called Notes on the Roll Dimension. So there's this idea that it, it's almost a maternal or a matriarchal idea, and that's why we use the image of the queen. This book we wrote 20 years ago, it's just a little pamphlet, we call it a book. It's 20 years old, but I think it holds up. So if I were in a large organization, and I wanted to create innovation. I would incubate many, many things. And I would see which ones held promise and I would feed them. Now, maybe Google X is about this. Have you heard about? Yes. This? Maybe that's what they do. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how explicit it is. But this, but even, I'm not even sure that they have this perspective that they're creating new language. And a lot of that has to come from, and now I'm going to get a little bit hand wavy, intuition, uh, meditation, uh, exploration, where we don't know where it's going to go, et cetera. I mean, another way to say it is if I have an existing system and I want to improve it slightly, 
then a small investment is highly likely to get me some improvement of efficiency. This is at the other extreme. I have no idea if this will lead to something new. And this also requires um, a match in an evolutionary sense to what the current environment is doing, right? There, there was a moment in time when an electric car wasn't an innovation. It didn't make sense because it didn't match the environment. Um, it has to be evolutionarily current, this new way of seeing, this new, uh, this new language. It has to match to what's going on in the world. You can't invent your own alien world and create a new product in the absence of customers or currency or any of those kinds of things. So incubation, um, promoting those that are promising, letting the others go, uh, but also focused on conversation and on variety in the room, on acting and making and going through this loop, observing, thinking, acting. There's, there's no prescription, right? Yeah. Well, Despite so what they might tell you with design thinking, forgive the interruption, I have to get this rant in. Despite what they might tell you, design thinking leads to innovation. This is absurd, right? Innovation is exactly the thing that you can't predict you can get. That's the whole reason why it's cool. If anybody could do it by applying design thinking, the world would be a perfect place and everyone would be innovative. It ain't so. So this is where I want to kind of make the connection with a theme that our listeners know well about and that we 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 like also, which is this jobs to be done theory. Yeah. So the idea of jobs to be done, are you, uh, do you know about yes, it? Yes, of course, sure. So, so I, I want to get your ideas on on how these two visions connect. But first, I'd like to use a quote that I I really like that I got from uh, uh, one of your papers. Uh, well, it was actually a conversation. It's called "The Cybernetic Perspective on Design and Creativity: A Conversation with Dr. Paul Pangaro, which people can find on your website. Mm -hmm. And he said, "So we tend to think of creativity as problem solving." But if I tell you what the problem is, I've already narrowed how I am seeing it. Yeah. And therefore, I narrow what possibly may come from it. Yeah. And I thought this was a very interesting uh, quote. And wondered if you could expand a bit on that. Sure. Problem solving is what people talk about all the time. Some people say design is problem solving. And there's value in that up to a point, but I think that idea has become, forgive the bluntness of this, unfortunate and maybe obsolete. Uh, again, Horace Rittle, simple problem, my light doesn't work. No argument there. How do we fix it? Not a problem. Is it the light bulb, is it the socket, is it the power, is it this, is it that? No ambiguity as to what the problem is and how to go about it. But the interesting problems, even if they're not fully wicked problems in the world, which have social components and technical components and environmental natural components. So we commonly think of design as problem solving, and a lot of people quote that. And you can go to a lot of schools and look on their websites if they have design departments, or you can go to agencies and so on. Design equals problem solving. It's a common way of thinking about it. If I say what the problem is, that starts me down a particular path. For example, the classic example is if I have a light bulb that isn't working, 
it's a simple problem now. We're going to get in a minute to what's a more complex but a simple problem. There's no ambiguity about what the problem is. Light doesn't work. We want the light to work. It's clearly a goal that we have. But also the mechanism behind it is completely deterministic and knowable. Right? It's the bulbs, the sockets, the power, blah, blah, blah. When we look into the world and we say, mm, this isn't going well, we might want to immediately say, oh, the problem is that. The classic example of a wicked problem, for example, is homelessness. What's the problem? People don't have homes. It's one way of saying what the problem is, right? And I do this with students all the time, and they look at me as if I have two heads. When I say, what's the problem with homelessness? I say, what do you mean? So I ask them to say what the problem is. I force them to go down a particular road, and they say the problem is people have to live on the streets. Oh, why is that? Because they don't have any money. Oh, why is that? because they don't have a job. Oh, so the problem is jobs? Yes, uh, mm, no. The problem is they don't have the skills to have a job. Oh, so the problem is education. Okay, great, so we'll just give them all education. No, many have mental illness. Oh, so the it's whack-a-mole, right? Hmm. So that's one issue. Then in, in wicked problems, it's not one aspect of it that can be hooked onto as the problem, there are many possible aspects that could be hooked onto. So let's back out of the idea of thinking about problems and let's look at the situation and let's characterize what we would prefer to be different, right? That's design. Current conditions to preferred ones. So that's step one. But the thing to, to realize, and it's very important, is once you prefer to start from the idea that the problem is they don't have homes, then you're down a path. And the things you think about, the potential actions, the ramifications of those actions and so on, are beginning to be set. And yet there's an alternative set of problems. Is it mental illness? Is it lack of jobs? Is it racism? Is it inequality? Is it to me, any one of these things. So what's occurred in design, and this is not a universal, although I think it should be, and I'm currently working on a course here at Carnegie Mellon to put at the foundation the idea that looking at a situation and me saying what I see is important in that situation is second order. It's from my values. It's not objectively true that that's more important than that. But I say I prefer because of my concerns, my values, my emotional components, my history, I prefer to forefront these things. And then you come along and you say, well, wait a minute, Paul, you're not forefronting those things. Let's have a conversation about that. And as a consequence of this mess, some call it, this mixture, this different way of seeing, this situation that is before all of us and yet each of us could describe validly differently we come forward with these distinctions these values what we think is more important than the rest what our ethics are what our preferences are and only by coming to a consensus a sufficient consensus to say okay we agree that we think going in this direction now for these reasons, always have to have a rationale. It's design, it's not art. Can't just say, I wanna do this. You have to say, I wanna do this because, 
that leads to saying the problem we are going to work on is this. But long before that, there is no problem. There is a situation, there is conversation, there is disagreement, some convergence, maybe some shouting, maybe some friction and provocation. But unless you do that, you're not giving full openness to the variety in the room, right? Who has the right to say the problem is this versus that? No one, not even the designer. One might say, especially not the designer, because <laughs> they don't live in that community. They don't know what's going on, right? So again, this idea of not privileging or centering the designer is important for the right reasons. I mean, it may be important for other reasons as well, but in terms of the outcome of the design, no less for political and social and diverse and equitable and inclusive reasons. So to recap, if you start with problem solving, then you've narrowed and you've eliminated the possibility of this range of things and you've cut off conversation about a lot of potential ways of seeing that could be valid. So start instead, this is the alternative cliche, with problem finding. But before you find the problem, you have to have this open conversation with diverse and widely ranging perspectives such that you are comprehensive in what you could include before you narrow and say, we are going to attack it in this direction with this language for these reasons. But again, language in the sense of distinctions and preferences. It's not just these are the distinctions and the words we use. These words are more important than these words. Equity is more important than the color of the building we're going to build for the community. I mean, that's a stupid example, but I think you see what I mean. Yeah. There is a lot in, in, in this about this. It, it sounds like it's, it's first you have a question on the values of values. Like what are the, like what, what are the values that we, well, how much weight do we give to what value? before we even go go in, something like that, at least. Where I'm starting now with students is, what are your domains of interest? Sustainability, mm. access to abortion rights. An industrial designer wants to build certain kinds of products, great. Not a value judgment from any of that. But now also tell me what are your values? Don't just mm. tell me your domain, tell me your concerns is the word I'm using. What are you worried about? What are the things that might be a little bit intuitive and not necessarily stated and more emotional than rational? Bring those forward. Got to have those. They're there anyway. They're inside. <laughs> right? Yeah. Everyone is biased. Right. It's, it's like that old thing. Oh, oh, you have an accent. Everybody has an accent. Right. Everybody has bias. Yeah. Right? Let, let's talk about it in, in the best way we can and then become open-minded and inclusive to alternatives i like that a lot i'll always say if there is this sentence where people say oh well that's a made-up word but aren't all words like <laughs> but all anyway words. that's a different <laughs> all words are made up so as you know about jobs to be done would you say jobs to be done is in this problem finding space or um in part my first intuition when i first heard about it was being perhaps the cybernetician that I am. A job to be done is a goal from user, right? It's a desire, it's a need, it's a pre 
preference. It's a wanting of something that they don't now have. Now, again, from cybernetics and conversation theory, there are layers here. So for example, my job to be done might be to order a new lamp for my living room. It's a fact, but that's not all that I need to think about in order to order a lamp for my living room. There's a higher context, a goal. What do I want to do? Is it decorative? Do I want to read from it? Does it have to be uh, dimmable, right? And similarly, if I'm building something for a community, what's the job that the community wants to do? Well, they might say they need a store to have food that is healthy for the people and, and reasonably um, uh, inexpensive, right? New York City had this problem when I was living there some years ago. And they got people to have hand carts this big to sell fruits and vegetables on the corner. It's a brilliant solution in a way. Um, what was the job to be done? Well, is it just to let me buy an apple or to let people who otherwise have to travel four miles to a good supermarket and the only choice nearby is a place nearby is a place that sells potato chips? Well, that's in the context because how much it costs to get food, the inconvenience of it, the value of good nutrition, yada, yada, yada. These are higher levels than being able to buy an apple on the street. So there is a model, again, from conversation theory that says any job is within the context of the value of that job in the context of the reason for the job and so on and so forth. It's a hierarchy of goals. Mm. <laughs> We've had many discussions around that. Yeah. So yes, thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. So I think we, we're getting to the end of our, really, this is such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for, for, for coming. And uh, Thank you. Uh, I, I had a last kind of little, well, maybe not so little question, but a last <laughs> question. And then we'll, we'll get to the, I think we'll bring it to a, to a close. Um, so I, I want to start again with some, some quotes. Uh, so the first quote is, is the following design is purposeful this is the defining factor that separates designly creativity from pure artistic creativity and acting cybernetically is seeing a goal oh sorry that's a second quote sorry about that and acting cybernetically is seeing a goal in the distance that's the second quote um and then so that that is one idea okay so acting cybernetically is seeing a goal in the distance and then you have another another quote, it, uh, which is the following. It is important to understand that thinking of design as steering does not necessarily mean having a predetermined specific goal in mind. And to me, just reading this quickly, I feel, but isn't that kind of a contradiction? I mean, how how can you do both? How can you have a goal, but then you say you don't have a goal? What Can you explain that a bit? Maybe. Um, I think that's the human condition. That ambiguity is the human condition. So I act now and I head toward my kitchen and I want to get some coffee. And then when I get there, I think, well, no, maybe there's something else. So if intentionality has that flexibility, then the best environment I can be in is one in which I have agency agency to select a goal and keep going toward it or to change what the goal is. So that would be one point. Another point is, as you quoted earlier, I don't think we can know except through action. So I might need to try the coffee to decide that coffee was the wrong goal. Or I might need to try to build a product that will create 
equity in a community that doesn't have equity until I realize that's never going to work in that direction. And so I have to change the goal in order to do something, right? So I don't think it's contradictory other than it's the constant tension that is being human, right? We are all in a world that, hello, we cannot predict, period. Yeah, we can get pretty good at what the weather's going to be like in a couple of days. Uh, we can figure out CO2 is really going in the wrong direction, 2050, oh my God, etc. But even though so much of the world is unknowable, I might walk out in the street and this, I'm, I live on the street where the, uh, the speed limit is very high. And in fact, people go twice the speed limit and it's really dangerous, right? I mean, I might not do well in that context if something goes awry, someone goes a flat, flat tire something. We live in a world that's fundamentally unknowable and yet we can act in the world, right? We can try things we can see as a consequence of what we tried, what was successful in our terms in our shared terms, in our societal terms, right? At different scales, individual, community, nation, globe. We're not doing very well globe-wise. We're not doing very well nation-wise. We can try all of these different things and do the best we can to keep going. I mean, that's what nature is, right? We're analog, biological creatures. We have all this other stuff going on that makes us think otherwise. But, you know, my, my dog or, or the bird outside or the squirrels that are, there are so many of nearby, you know, they're doing okay. They're just, you know, figuring it out moment by moment. We have the, the advantage and the disadvantage of cognition and the world who we create that way, which can just be creating problems for ourselves if we don't realize what's the fundamental. We act in the world. We have intention. We create intention. We need to live together. We need conversation to live together. We need to create equity in order to be, you know, as Heinz von Forster loved to say, A, person A, is better off if B is better off. My friend Larry Richards liked to say B is better off if A is better off. So we live in this flux of interactions and the best we can do is to formulate what we think is okay right now try it out. Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. And to just keep going. So the tension is there. I wish I could say it's not a contradiction. It is a contradiction. But that's the nature of life. Scott, I think you had a question. I do. And, and by luck or something, it I think it dovetails with the point you were just making, Paul. Good. Yeah, I've just, I've got so many notes everywhere. And and even I just wrote down one just now. You said we're in a world we cannot predict and uh, that the future is unknowable. And I've just I've got a section of quotes. These are sort of fun where people try to predict the future. Um, what, uh, one person said 640 kilobytes of memory ought to be enough for anybody on a PC. That's yeah. Bill Gates. Fooling around with alternating, alternating current AC is a waste of time. Nobody will use it ever that's Edison. And yeah. there's there, there's a lot there's there's just tons of these. Sweet. Um Very which sweet. is really bolstering this point that no matter what your level of expertise, it almost pulls you into a, a maybe even an arrogance of even more blinded. I'm not, yes. not sure. Yes, because um, you're invested in a way of seeing. Yeah, in a way of seeing. And then you re you referred to the leaders. 
have a way of seeing. And in a business, that the engineers have a way of seeing. And probably, I imagine these sort of converge together and these stories we tell each other take on this air of truth the more we tell them. So, so that is a backdrop. My question for you is, this, what's well, a scenario? And then I'm I'm going to ask your advice for this scenario. Okay, so imagine that we're have imagine that we have a company and we have a product that's number two. So we're not number one, number two, solid market share, but things could happen. We're going to have a big summit, a big strategic mm-hmm. meeting where we want to think about the future and and where where it is. To your words, we cannot predict that it's unknowable. What do we do? What do we do to try to do the best we can um, to prepare for that future? Well, the question may be unanswerable, but but (laughs) fair enough. I think there are two things I would say. One is the baseline is, again, a great quote from Heinz von Forrester. If you wish to see, learn how to act, which is only by doing things. Can you get anywhere? But that may, that may seem like a sort of a brush off. And I don't think it's fair to brush off uh, such a question. Um, I would say to return to the center of what it means to be human. And let me invoke another great influence and an extraordinary character, Umberto Maturana. Do you know this name? Biologist? He never liked to say he was a cybernetician, but we adopted him nonetheless. He always said he was a biologist. <laughs> and a privilege to have known him a little bit years ago. What he would say is, if we want to bring about change, rather than immediately say, oh, let's make a new technology. Let's do this. That's new. That's new. That's new. And to privilege new above all else. Let's first decide what we don't want to change. And he said, what we wish to conserve, again, values, concerns. And if we decide what we want to conserve, that sounds like we're constraining ourselves and we're limiting ourselves and all of that. But he says the following, he says, once we decide what we want to conserve, we open a space of possibilities in which change can take place. That is so profound, you know, tell that to the AI guys you know, to the people building chat GPT and worried about the singularity and building robots and whatever else they're doing, right? Can we decide what we want to conserve? It seems to be difficult for us on the planet to do that. We're not very good at conserving the environment, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the best I can do as a way forward in an unpredictable world, because at least we're holding on to something that we think is important. And again, I think what's important is We are biological analog creatures that are part of nature that unfortunately for nature have extraordinary powers of destruction and influence. And it is our responsibility as second order creatures to respect that it's only a point of view that we have. It's not divine right or eminent domain or manifest destiny. There's a bunch of quotes from geography, uh, from history and geography. I didn't know I had those. I, I well, hope so that that begins. I'm, I'm not sure it's satisfying, but that would be my answer. I asked you an impossible question, so I thought that was, was a, begin with what you want to protect. That's not, I think they use the word conserve. I sort of already okay. translated a bit, but yeah, okay. I like yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, 
No, I love impossible questions. They're my favorite. Or again, <laughs> Heinz von Furster, his name keeps coming up. He says, he, he makes a distinction between decidable and undecidable questions. Okay. And the great thing about the undecidable questions is we can decide how to answer them. Yeah. It's almost like a Zen con. Two plus two is four. We can't change that decision, right? But what should we do next? It's undecidable in a way, but therefore we can decide. Anyway, his ideas are much more profound than that, but that's mm -hmm. the overview. Well, Thank you. Paul, uh, I think that's a very nice place to to end on these deep words. Mm. Uh, I really want to thank you again for, for you. joining us for this conversation. Fantastic. And um, I wonder if there's anything else you would like to, to add at this point? No, just my appreciation for your thoughtfulness and your preparation. And I will send you a bunch of things and uh, feel free to share whatever you think is valuable. And uh, maybe I will ask for the one of the last words. Gordon Pask, one of my greatest influences, used to like to say after he talked for hours and hours, he used to like to say, you know, a conversation once started never ends. And he meant that in a couple of ways. One is that we can do this again, but also your mind, because it's a conversation, you're different now than when we started. And you can keep going on your own. You can say, well, Paul said this and Scott, that's how you know, so on and so forth. So it keeps going. It has its own momentum. It has its own evolution. It's like a biology all of its own is the biology of thought. But it's also an explicit invitation from me to you that let's keep going. If you want to do anything again, if you want to chat informally, you want to write a book? Shall we write a book? <laughs> well, that's greatly appreciated. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Appreciate all of you. Thank you. Um, so can do you... Can people follow you anywhere? Where would be the best way for people um, to, to learn more about your writing? So, your work? so the work is at pangaro.com, P-A-N-G-A-R-O.com. Um, I'm on Twitter as Paul Pangaro and um, LinkedIn. You can also find me. I've been publishing a lot lately. I've been trying to get a bunch of work done. I would like to share some projects I'm doing and some links I'll send you, which you can also share further. Um, and let's imagine that this is the beginning of the invitation to keep going. I'd love to. Wonderful. Great. Okay. So that concludes today's Product Quest podcast. Please send any comments or ideas for future shows to productquestpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. I, oh, thank you so much. That was absolutely amazing. I've wow. never had so many notes. They're everywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm so glad. Yeah.